everyone. Welcome to Unapologetic, a podcast dedicated to giving women of color a voice and an opportunity to share their journey with the world. My name is Kalina Bryant, and I am the founder of Unapologetic, and I will be your host for today. I'm excited to introduce to you our next guest speaker, Dana Baird, a seasoned product marketing leader in Silicon Valley who has worked at some of the hottest companies such as Google and Facebook. Dana will be sharing her journey on being an African-American female leader in the tech industry, her path to becoming an executive in Silicon Valley, how she overcame perfectionism through her journey, and how she balances her career and personal life. Without further ado, welcome Dana. Hello, thank you for having me. Excited to have you. Well, I'd love to just jump right in it. You have a phenomenal background. I would like to understand where did the journey begin for Dana? Ah, well, the journey began in New Jersey. But actually, let me take a little bit step back, go further, further back. My parents actually are immigrants. Um, my father is Jamaican. My mother's Bahamian. Uh, they came to this country when they were teenagers. And like many immigrants, they valued hard work. They came to this country to have a better life. And so they took full advantage of all of the opportunities that were opening up for Black people in America at the time. So I think this was in the, the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. My father, who is a huge, huge fan of education and the power of education to change lives, uh, he came to the, this country around the age of 13, and he uh, lived in Brooklyn. Um, he started in a, like a really rough kind of uh, school in the inner city and ended up testing into a magnet school, Brooklyn Tech. Uh, from there, he was able to get a degree in engineering because uh, college was free at the time. And he you know, established himself as a professional in engineering, got his MBA. Uh, and so I grew up in the suburbs, middle class, kind of white picket fence. Okay, we didn't literally have a white picket fence, but you get the picture. <laughs> um, and I had the luxury of going to good schools throughout my life. And I had two parents, a stable household. My mom stayed home and took care of the kids. My dad went to work and my parents really emphasized education as the key to unlocking any dream. So I experienced that privilege growing up and that love of education and instilling that idea of working hard, applying yourself was something that really helped me to achieve all of the things I've been able to achieve throughout my life. Amazing. And so when thinking about education, I know you have a phenomenal background all the way from Princeton to Wharton. Um, so talk to me a little bit about that journey and what led you into tech. So in high school, uh, like many um, Jamaican parents, my dad often emphasized that you can major in whatever you want as long as it will get you paid. So <laughs> I early on was told you have to major in basically science or, you know, maybe business, maybe. Uh, so I always had it in my head that I was going to do something in the sciences. I studied chemical engineering in undergrad. I ended up going to Princeton because I have always been someone who's just wanted to shoot for the hardest thing, pick the hardest thing you could choose to do. I wanted to try to do it and do it better than anybody else. So I uh, aimed for Princeton, got into Princeton, majored in chemical engineering, and then I discovered, I had a couple of internships, I discovered that working as an engineer is like watching paint dry. It's quite boring. <laughs> I did not like it. Um, so one of my best friends at the time, she was an undergrad at Wharton, and she was uh, working in New York as an investment banking intern. And that sounded really, really exciting to me, really sexy. So I thought, I'm going to try this banking thing. 
And I remember my dad was horrified. He was like, what are you doing? You have an engineering degree. What is this investment banking thing? I don't understand it. I didn't listen to my dad. Um, I became an investment banker and that's actually how I transitioned into business. So I started my career in investment banking. I eventually switched over to consulting and I got an MBA at Wharton. My early career was all in healthcare. So my MBA was in healthcare management, graduated from Wharton with my fancy MBA. And then I went to McKinsey where I worked as a consultant focused on healthcare. So you're probably wondering, great. So where does the tech come in? And my journey into tech was a little bit of an accident. I really envisioned myself having a career fully in healthcare. I thought uh, I'm going to run some sort of biotech or healthcare company at some point in my life. But after about three years at McKinsey, a couple of things became clear to me. Number one, I do not like getting on a plane twice a week. Number two, I actually enjoy sleeping. And number three, I really, really, really don't like this idea of coming up with an idea, showing up, giving a fancy presentation and walking away. I wanted to own a problem from end to end. I wanted to implement. So I decided, all right, I'm going to go transition to the corporate side. And I thought I would end up at a healthcare company, a biotech company, per my earlier comment. But then I was looking at the McKinsey job boards and there were all these jobs for this place called Google. This was a while ago. This was over 10 years ago. And I looked at Google's Google's mission, which was, um, I can't remember it exactly, but the gist of it is about democratizing democratizing information. Um, I think it's about organizing the world's information. And as I mentioned earlier, I truly, truly believe in the power of education to transform lives. And I think information is power. That has been drilled into me since I was a little girl. And so when I saw this posting for Google, I thought I should apply for a job at this company. And because of my McKinsey network, because there were a lot of ex-McKinsey people at Google, I got an interview. I did not know a thing about tech, but I got the job. And that was my first experience in the tech world. And I have to admit, I was blown away. There were so many things I loved about tech. I loved the way of working where you're encouraged to be more entrepreneurial. Even in big tech companies, or at least my experience in big tech companies, people are encouraged to define their own jobs, to come up with ideas, to pursue those ideas. Tech companies are often fairly flat in terms of the hierarchy, and people are encouraged to speak their minds. So that at first was really hard for me, but then I had this epiphany one day and I thought, oh my goodness, I can decide what I want to do and just do it. And so once I kind of had that mind shift, I fell in love with tech and I've been in tech ever since. Wow, that is amazing. And within that, I mean, you know, the McKinsey's from consulting to tech to Google, what has been some of the struggles that you've had to overcome in order to still find success throughout your journey? So for me, the thing that I've struggled most with is they're all related, but I call it the kind of unholy trinity. Um, First is this deep-seated fear that I am not enough, that I can't do the work, that I don't belong. That then kind of is paired with this idea that, I guess I should call it, it's it's this, this voice in my head, this inner critic that's constantly telling me, correcting me, telling me that was stupid, you were dumb. So that voice that's always telling me that I'm not enough, <laughs> reiterating this deep set belief. And I think those two things really led me to develop this um, perfectionistic approach to life. So if you're someone who feels like you're not good enough 
and you're constantly telling yourself in your head, you're not good enough. People like that, there are a lot of reasons why people become perfectionists, but that is like creates ripe conditions to lean into and become a perfectionist. So because I'm afraid I'm not good enough, I'm going to make sure that I look the part, that I'm dressed a certain way, that I speak a certain way, that I never show emotion, that I always have the right answer, and that I never, God forbid, make mistakes. And so that was kind of the approach I had to succeeding. And let me tell you, that is a really, really hard way to approach life and to approach work. It is exhausting. I agree. But you know, what you just touched on, I feel as though if we think about your background being an, an, an immigrant and identifying as a Black woman and taking on such big roles, I feel as though you're speaking to an audience that deals with that same struggle. Everyone wants to be perfect. And so what I want to understand is how did you, number one, identify that you had this ism? And number two, how did you tackle it? So the way I identified that I had this ism is... I realized that over time, I was becoming more and more afraid to take risks. Um, and I was developing deep-seated kind of anxiety. I was becoming more and more anxious. I even got to a point where I started to see a therapist because I was so stressed out and anxious all the time. I would walk around afraid. I would go to meetings afraid. <laughs> I'd be afraid to talk. And when I did talk, I would sometimes just be replaying what I said in my head over and over for a day or two. And if I deemed it to be uninformed, stupid, not good enough, I would beat myself up. So as you can imagine, carrying around all that weight and baggage and fear was crippling. It crippled me as an executive. I wouldn't take chances. I wouldn't raise my hand for things. And it became very, very difficult to speak up and do my job. So it got to a point where I kind of hit a little bit of rock bottom and I had to fix the problem, but I did work with coaches and therapists to try to unpack, well, what is the cause of this perfectionism? How did you get to this place? And the short story is I got to this place because as a black person, there's a lot of negative images associated with blackness, with black people. It's in the media, it's in the subtle, you know, microaggressions that you get every day. It's in the, oh, can I touch your hair? Or, oh, um, you know, that's a very, very interesting outfit you're wearing. Or, oh, you know, um, I didn't even realize that you were Black. I've literally had people say that. I forgot that you were Black. So there's all these subtle ways that people remind you mm -hmm. um, of your Blackness and of your otherness. And there's also just the fact that you're often the only one in the room and when, at least as I started to get more senior, I looked up, I got to a point where I was the most senior black person in my org when I was at Google. And I remember thinking, well, how do I see the model of how someone like me can operate and be successful? Mm -hmm. With all of this, and with the fact that I knew that the playing field was unlevel and that people do go in with the assumption that black people aren't as good as a lot of times it's subconscious. I think most people are not consciously trying to discriminate, be racist, but we all have those biases and there are a lot of negative associations with blackness and black people. So what I ended up doing to solve this problem, you know, as I mentioned, I got a lot of help and it took many, many, many years. And by the way, I will always, I think, struggle with imposter syndrome and an inner strong inner critic uh, and perfectionism. But I got to a point where I'm like, you know what? 
the only thing I got is me. I'm just going to be me. So you can't see me right now, but I, at a certain point, just went and I now have natural hair. I wear my hair natural. I've worn it that way for years. And that was really scary for me because that's outside of the image of what's acceptable. I've decided that I'm just going to speak up and I'm going to show up the way I am. And that was actually a scary decision because I had originally tried to be someone who tamped down my emotions, who tried to act and model myself after what I thought was the model of a good, quote unquote, good and acceptable professional. But to be honest, it's too exhausting. So now I just try to be myself. I've also learned to trust my own voice. I am a smart woman. I am able to say that for a long time, I didn't think it, but I have a lot of great ideas. I have just got to the point where I'm like, I'm going to own them. And you know what? Sometimes my great ideas turn out to be wrong. They might not take me in the right direction. They may not work and that's okay. So I've become comfortable with making mistakes. As I've gone through that journey of kind of having all these realizations and embracing who I am, I did actually develop a couple of actual techniques that I employ on a day-to-day basis to help to help me get through the day, to help me reduce the anxiety and the fear that I sometimes experience when I decide to go out and be myself with my natural hair and my <laughs> big ideas and opinions. And I'm going to just share like the three things that I employ. It's in my little toolkit that I use probably multiple times every day. So the first thing is, and this is a trick that you, if you, anyone who has a meditation practice or who is in therapy, you've probably heard of this. It's just like naming the thing. So when I am in a meeting and I say something and that voice in my head starts thinking, saying to me, oh, that was so dumb. You're so stupid. I just name it. I say, oh, that's my inner critic criticizing me. That's my inner critic trying to save me from making a mistake. And honestly, just by naming it, just by labeling it as that inner critic voice, I actually am able to reduce the power of that voice on me. So I immediately feel less anxiety. I immediately tamp down the fear that starts to rise up when that voice starts speaking in my head. So that's the first thing, naming it. Second thing is... I've started to try to challenge the stories that are in my head because that loud inner critic voice is telling me a story. It's telling me a story that what I just said in that meeting in this fictional example was stupid. The truth is I've started to realize nine times out of 10, that voice is just wrong. Actually, it wasn't a stupid comment. It was a brave comment. It was uh, putting a new idea out there. Maybe people had blank looks because they had too much food at lunch. Maybe you imagine the blank looks. Maybe they had blank looks because it's such a new radical idea, they need to absorb it. So by challenging the story in my head, I'm able to nine times out of 10, find out it was a story and it was wrong. And I do that just by, you know, maybe pulling someone who was in the meeting aside and saying, hey, what did you think of that idea? I noticed that no one said anything after I made that comment. Why is that? What were you thinking? And then you get the real story. So you're not dealing in hypotheticals, made up stories by your inner critic. And then the third thing is practice self-love. I have actually realized that I'm a wonderful person who brings a lot to the table. I'm not stupid. I'm not useless, which is by the way, what my inner critic says, but I don't spend enough time acknowledging my own achievements. I don't spend enough time speaking to myself. And this is the real trick. 
as if I was one of my daughters. I have two daughters, by the way. I would never speak to them the way I speak to myself. So sometimes I have to say, hey, how would you speak to yourself if you were one of your kids? So those are the things that I've kind of, the tools I've developed over time to help me tackle perfectionism. And I will tell you it's an ongoing struggle, but I'm still here, I'm still in tech. And each day I find myself taking on new challenges and pushing myself to new heights. Wow. I mean, I I wanted to take notes on that. And just to circle back, I mean, I've heard so many things, Dana, but it seems as though you had to empower yourself. And then once you realize, hey, I am this smart woman that's bringing a lot to the table, you had to actually turn that into a muscle and constantly remind yourself and also put certain things in place so you'll never go backwards. And I think that that's crucial for our audience because every day you're going to come up with you know, something that you have to conquer. And I think that being in tech, that's something that you have to focus on daily. And so my next question for you is, as you become this empowering person and you are a thought leader, how do you ensure that you're bringing someone else up with you? And that can be your team, that can be your children, your, your two beautiful um, little daughters. How are you constantly taking what you have had to learn, even if it's difficult, making sure that someone else doesn't have to do the same struggles or, or, or handle those same struggles? Ah, well... I do believe in paying it forward. And I believe that because I have made it through all the things that I've mentioned because people have reached out a helping hand to me in my time of need. I have met so many wonderful, gracious people throughout my career. And it's because I've had their help that I've been able to get to where I am. So my approach is, you know, if someone asks for a little bit of my time, If someone reaches out to me and says, hey, I am struggling with a problem, can you help? I always say yes, and I always try to make time. Now, granted, I'm a working mom of two, so I don't have infinite time, but whenever I possibly can, I try to make time to help other people. I am trying to actually create more time to participate in groups that support Black people, especially in tech. Um, Because I've realized I've made so many mistakes, but I've also made so many good choices. And I want to help those folks to learn how to navigate their career in ways that will enable them to be more successful. My goal is to make sure there are more people who look like me in the spaces that I inhabit uh, in the tech world, if at all possible. And I do think, I, I have to say this, that one of the biggest reasons why it's so hard for tech companies to improve diversity is because they spend a lot of time, you know, they have the ERGs, employee resource groups. They also make sure that the interviewing panels are very diverse, but less time and energy is put into making sure the experience of being a black person at a tech company works for it. Sorry, I'm, I'm talking about black, but this could apply to other groups. The experience of being a minority or an underrepresented person is setting you up for success, is positive. And I think the nuance there is arming people with the tools that they need to successfully navigate a professional career. And oftentimes these unwritten rules, these tools, I don't know this for a fact, but I think that they're kind of passed down Mm -hmm. by men, white men, especially to other white men. But I don't know that they, they get passed on to 
minorities to women in the same way, in large part because these tips and tricks are things that you share when you're out having a beer or when you're on the golf course. So if you're not someone that's part of that network, you're not going to get that information. So I'm on this mission to try to make sure I'm sharing my knowledge. I'm sharing the kind of unwritten rule book that I've started to figure out with other people who look like me as much as possible. I love that. And so what I'm hearing, Dana, is it's important to have a tribe. And it's even more important to have a tribe if you identify, let's just say, as a Black woman, but more importantly, if you identify as just an underrepresented person in tech. And that brings me to my next segment. Our next question for you is the importance of, number one, allyship and the importance of advocacy. You know, I think that being in our industry, you mentioned we have plenty of opportunities, ERGs, you know, diverse panels to get people inside of tech, especially people of color. But the problem is how do we keep them, you know, and, and how do we nurture them? And with you being a senior leader right now, you would be carving the way for the next individual that potentially may look like you. But in order to have that person up and ready for the job, how do you begin to advocate for them and nurture them and, and make sure that they're set up for success? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, okay. So I think you, you mentioned something important. People don't become successful without um, having sponsors. So this notion of allyship, you need someone, oftentimes people get promoted, they get bigger scopes because there's someone more senior who's advocating for them who's pushing for them to have that promotion, who's pushing for them to have that you know, big project uh, where they can stand out and then earn a bigger scope. But also, and this is equally as important, giving the individual feedback when they're getting off track. Minorities and women often don't get the same um, feedback and input when they're kind of on the wrong track. So you, you can't just have the opportunity, but you also have to have the support, the coaching, to perform well once you get the opportunity. What I personally am trying to do is now that I've, I am more senior, um, I'm trying to do a couple things. Number one, offer myself up as a mentor to help people uh, figure out how to navigate difficult times in their careers. It could be uh, that they need to raise their hand for a tough project. It could be that they're being underpaid and they need to have a tough conversation with their manager in the right way to get more money. It could be that they're in a role that's not fulfilling and they're trying to figure out how do I figure out that next step? So I personally am trying to be there and mentor is like a weak word for what I'm trying to do because I think sometimes mentors come and they give you useless advice and they give you a lot of platitudes. I, I want to try to have real talk with people about real situations and explain to them how the sausage is really made. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how can you effectively go and negotiate comp? Let's talk really about how these things happen. How do people um, move from one level to the next? Well, how, 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 how is that all decided? Now, look, I don't know how the official system at every company, but typically there's a little bit of a, shall we say, game that's played around these things. And I try to real talk with people about what's going on, what the system looks like, and then how can you not be a victim of it? Because I often see people feeling defeated by it. Like, oh, the playing field's unlevel. I'm not evaluated as fairly as others. There's nothing I can do. There's plenty you can do. Just because things aren't fair doesn't mean that you can't 
advocate for yourself and overcome? You're spot on, Dana. I think that advocating for yourself in this environment, for any environment, is important, especially for women of color. How do you find allies that are willing to help you along the way, but also advocate for you when they're in rooms that you're not allowed to be in yet? That's a really, really great question. And everyone needs an ally. Everyone needs um, a sponsor is another word that people use in order to succeed. I think I said that before. So when I join a company, I know that you need that to succeed. I make it my business to figure out who could be that person for me. And what I found to be effective is oftentimes I start by just establishing my credibility, my bona fides. I come into a company, I start listening more than talking, building relationships with people, and identify one or two or three quick wins. Because oftentimes when you come in and you deliver value, people sit up and take notice, and then they, they almost raise their hand to be your ally. Now, real talk, the people who've been the best allies to me are pretty much all white men. Like the only allies, sponsors I've had in my career have been, oh, that's not true. There was one black man who was a, who was a wonderful, I'm smiling because he was so wonderful. I don't want to put him on the spot, so I'm not going to say his name, but mostly white men. And so when you're looking for allies, you kind of have to look at the people in power. And I find that, you know, depending on your background, reaching out to and trying to connect with an older person who's white and in tech, it could be a younger person who's white, who's a male might seem scary, but the truth is they're just people like you and me. And they're trying to build something. They're trying to drive something. They're trying, they have some sort of vision. So if you can help them get closer to realizing that vision, they'll sit up and take notice and they'll want to be your ally. They'll want to be your sponsor. But the key is you have to deliver the value first. You can't roll in day one and say, I'm smart. I'm here. I've got great credentials. Where's my ally? That's not going to work. So I uh, put in the work first. Uh, and then I work on making connections with that person. And I often will have multiple allies going at any one time, but I always know who they are. And I try to figure out how can I invest in those relationships and how can I continue to deliver value and how can I continue to have a dialogue with that individual in an appropriate way. And by the way, you cannot show up to a super senior person's door and just say, hey, I just wanted to catch up. You have to have something to say. The other thing, though, is in addition to the ally and sponsor, you always have to have a mentor, but it has to be a good one. And I say it's a good mentor because it's often someone in, in my experience, my mentors look like me, have shared experience and can help me to think through how to operate in the world in a way that works for a black female. So most of the people I consider mentors are real mentors. I don't know. I need to come up with a name for it they're black women. And I had to have a network of people that I've found over time and I try to stay in touch with them. And when I have a real hairy question, like, hey, how do I negotiate the salary for this new job? Can you help me? Those are the people I go to and they will real talk with me. Uh, and then I have a network of peers who can I, I can always just check in. I can run things by. I can sometimes I've done the, oh my God, I'm so upset. I'm so frustrated. And I need to ugly cry in front of you so I don't embarrass myself at work or do or say something I shouldn't. But I leverage my peers in that way. And then I'm also this coach thing. It's like a new trend, but I'm totally on board. I have a coach. And I use my coach to actually help like, okay, I have this big meeting and I need to strategize like, 
who to invite, how to run the meeting, how to start it, or, okay, I'm trying to get this new project off the ground and I'm facing resistance, what should I do? Or, hey, I'm struggling with this thing. I think I have a, have a tough conversation with my boss. How do I have that conversation? The last thing I'll say about coaches is they're very valuable, very helpful, but not all coaches are created equally. If you have a coach who doesn't work for you, please politely fire your coach and look for a new one. You'll know it when you see it, because when you have a good coach, they make you a better, shinier, more effective version of yourself. So I know you asked about allyship, but I had to throw those other three in there because- No, they're, all they're allies too, right? I think allies in, in developing your tribe, right? It, it's, yeah. it comes from different resources. You know, It could be the coach, it could be your therapist, it could be your boss, it could be someone that you worked with 10 years ago. You never know. It's just more so of having a- I like to see it as you have a diversified portfolio of allies. Oh. within your tribe to make sure that, that you're successful. Yeah, I love that. And so, you know, I, I love the way this conversation is going and we can talk forever, but I want to also highlight the fact of, um, you know, balance because you are a senior leader in a highly respected company making change. And also you are a mother of two, a wife, how do you balance it all? Uh, oh boy. So it starts with, um, I'm very meticulous about my calendar. Um, I make sure I block time every morning. So I get up at 5.30. I'm a morning person though. For non-morning people, that might sound crazy, but I get up early in the morning and I work out five days a week. Uh, and I do that because that gives me the, it helps me to be centered and it gives me the energy I need for the day. Um, and then I block time throughout the day for just a quick break or lunch. I find that oftentimes, and you've probably heard this before, people are a slave to their calendar. You need to make your calendar work for you. I have killed FOMO. FOMO does not exist for me. I am happy to not be in your meeting. So if you don't have a good reason for me to be in a meeting, if I see a meeting and I'm not clear why it's there, I don't go to it. I find that a lot of people go to a lot of unnecessary meetings because of FOMO. FOMO is not your friend. So calendar management is an important piece so that I can manage my energy throughout the day. But the other thing is, if you have kids, you have to really pick the right partner. My husband is amazing. He's a great partner. We share things equally and we are intentional about who is doing what. A lot of working women, I see it, smart working women, do more than their fair share of the housework, house maintenance, and now homeschooling and childcare. Well, childcare is always a thing, but homeschooling is a new thing. <laughs> um, if you don't adequately balance out the load with yourself and your partner, guess whose career is going to suffer? Yours, not your husband's mm -hmm. or your spouse's or whatever. So I, um, I picked the right spouse, yay. But I also uh, intentionally share the load with my spouse. And then th the final thing I'll say is I set clear boundaries. I'm really, really good at prioritizing. I decide... And by the way, if you are not good at that, or you're not sure if you're, you're good at it, which means you're probably not, most people aren't, get good at it. Identify what things actually have to get done and in what order. Clearly tell people, hey, this week I'm gonna do X, but I'm not gonna do Y for these reasons. And set a reasonable amount of things to get done each week so that you can be done with your work at a reasonable hour so that you can sleep at night, so that you can exercise 
every morning or evening, however, whatever works for you. So those are like the things that I do to maintain balance. Um, and I know it sounds simple on the surface, but it's really hard to do the easiest things or the simplest things. They're not easy. They're simple. But I would say like investing some time and figuring out what balance looks like for you and what you need to be your best self is really, really, really important. And I think women especially don't take the time to do that. And then they end up burnt out, feeling unfulfilled, or they just, I think a lot of times they just quit, quit working. That's why you often see women kind of drop out after they have kids. Wow. The biggest word that I took away that from that one is boundaries. I think boundaries is needed in every situation. And I think that you're handling it so well. And so on that note, Dana, I really want to open it up before we close to highlight what is next for you. And what I mean, what's next for you, not within your career, but I know that you definitely want to give back to the community. And I know that it's a big priority for you to, I don't want to say mentor. That's what we need to come up with a different word. for. Yeah. But I would say it's really creating the foundation for the next generation and making sure that they're set up for success. So I'd love to open it up for you to share some of those ideas and the support that you might be looking to receive from the audience, you know? I wish I had a really good, well-thought-out and well-formed answer for you. You are correct, and I think I've actually told you this. I envision the next phase of my life about giving back. But real talk, I have two kids who are very young, still in elementary school, a full-time job, a mortgage, and a house in the Bay Area. So right now, my plate's pretty full with that. But that said, one of the things I've committed to myself is to within the areas that I operate, carving out more time to mentor, for lack of a better word, but real talk, coach people who look like me so that they are more successful. I am literally in the process of trying to figure out exactly what that looks like now, but that's my short-term plan. Longer term, I actually think there might be another career in me. When I'm done with tech, I'm envisioning myself going into nonprofit or, I don't know, start my own thing, work with some other group that I believe in. But I want to do something that helps minorities to get access to education, to get access to job opportunities, to figure out how to succeed in them. I don't know what that's going to look like yet. But honestly, my career kind of came about in ways that were unexpected. I have this larger goal and I know I'll realize it. I just don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet. And it's okay, right? Sometimes the best opportunities come in uncertainty, right? Um, so I love it. And I think that this is the first step by showcasing your, your journey and story on our podcast. And I'd like for the audience to know that it is a marathon. You know, there's never an end goal. It's just making sure that you have certain milestones that you can hit and you can actually know that you're making progress. So with that, Dana, I would like to say just thank you for your honesty. Thank you for showing up, not just for tech, but for all women that are looking to have a career. Um, and thank you for showcasing balance and boundaries. And just thank you. You are quite welcome. This was delightful. All right. Well, audience, if you want to learn more about Dana, stay tuned. We will be having her back on for other engagements. Um, but thank you so much and have a good evening. Mm -hmm.